0: This is The lack with Helen Rollins, Benjamin Studebaker, and Nina Power. Today we're doing What is a Woman, and I'll kick us off. A documentary by conservative commentator Matt Walsh, What is a Woman, follows Walsh as he asks the titular question to a variety of people. Walsh feels that liberals don't have a satisfactory answer to this question. He finds many people who refuse to answer the question or who give circular definitions. Eventually, Walsh does confront the sex-gender distinction. It takes him quite a while to get around to it, but he does discuss the idea that a person's sex is a biological matter, while gender is focused on the way sex is socially recognized and culturally coded. This then raises further questions about how sex and gender ought to relate to one another. Should sex determine gender? Should gender determine sex? Or should there be some secret third thing? Walsh clearly thinks that sex should determine gender, and many of the liberals Walsh interviews think that gender should determine sex. Eventually, this results in increasingly fraught debates about the consequences of gender affirmation surgery. Walsh argues that these surgeries are harmful, or at the very least experimental. Some of what Walsh says is true. For instance, he points out that gender-affirming treatments generate a lot of revenue for big pharma. But some claims are false. For instance, Walsh claims that people who take hormones for 10 years are giving themselves cancer, but testosterone blockers are sometimes used as a preventative cancer treatment in men. My own father was put on testosterone blockers in a bid to slow down his prostate cancer. I am not in position to litigate the question of whether gender affirmation surgery works for everyone who gets it, some of the people who get it, or none of the people who get it. I know some trans people who have had gender-affirming surgeries they seem happy to have had them. Maybe they'll feel differently in 20 years. Maybe they won't. I don't know. As with cannabis, there is a powerful industry that wants us to believe these surgeries are straightforwardly safe, and there are conservative lobbyists who want us to believe that in the long term there are incredibly severe consequences. The science seems to reflect the material balance of power between these interest groups. It makes me uneasy and I am wary of those who are chomping at the bit to trust highly politicized science of all kinds, regardless of its bent. I know too many STEM graduate students, and I am too aware of their dependence on wealthy oligarchs and corporations for grant money. The engineers I know are focused on building things that actually work. Their work is tangible. Trains, bridges, the personal computer. I use these things. They break sometimes, but most of the time they work. I like engineers. So I don't feel confident enough to express a definitive view about the surgeries. I wouldn't let my kid get these operations for the same reason I wouldn't let my kid smoke weed. I'm not a very adventurous person, and I'm a bit controlling, and my impulse is to say no to things I don't feel I understand. I'm willing to try to learn if there is a way to learn, but there's too much money affecting the science for me to feel I can get anywhere here. I have a more developed view about identity. I don't think it's healthy for us to think of ourselves as individuals in the first instance. We are what we do for others. We are our roles. If you don't make shoes, you're not a cobbler. When Walsh asks the Maasai people his question, they define women by the gendered roles the biological women in the tribe play. But there are very few social roles in 21st century industrialized societies that are directly tied to biological sex. And those that are still tied to sex are not tied especially tightly to it. Sometimes your biological father plays the role we traditionally associate with mothers, and sometimes your biological mother plays the role we traditionally associate with fathers. These days, it makes more sense to say that the role of a parent can be played in many different ways. Why not question whether it still makes sense to gender the different approaches to parenting different parents take? I don't think I perform many roles that are specifically or exclusively male. To attempt to heavily identify with the fact that I have a penis when the penis plays such a peripheral role in most of what I do strikes me as a bit silly. That doesn't mean I want to identify as female or trans or non-binary. I just don't care very much, and I don't see why most people ought to care very much, because most people are not performing roles that have all that much to do with their genitals. I do see a lot of people who aren't performing any roles that are particularly meaningful. If you don't feel you have a meaningful role, you don't want to be defined by what you do, because you don't think what you do has value. The idea of an authentic self that is separate and distinct from our roles allows people who are trapped in alienating, meaningless roles to imagine that deep down, they are someone else, someone cool, someone heroic and virtuous and talented but if you aren't expressing your talents in a heroic or virtuous way through your day-to-day role, you're not a hero, and you're not virtuous. By pretending that you are somebody else, you make your meaningless role more tolerable, and that prevents you from taking political action to emancipate yourself and others from the bullshit job assigned to you by the people who own everything and control the distribution of time. This kind of escapism is infantilizing and quietist. It stunts political, ethical, and spiritual growth. It invites people to waste their lives doing meaningless, worthless things. The idea that we should have identities grounded on stuff that has nothing to do with our social roles, identities we pretend we freely choose, this is a form of ideology that is fundamentally repugnant to me. If we could get past it, I think we'd waste much less time asking which silly boxes we fit into. We could instead ask what roles are worth performing and build societies in which those roles are widely obtainable. But because there are huge industries built around getting us to fight over identity, we never get to think about these things. What is a cobbler? It's a person who makes shoes. Ah, but what are shoes? In what ways do shoes participate in the good? If you work in a shoe factory, are you a cobbler? If all shoes are made in shoe factories, what becomes of the cobbler's craft? I'd like a documentary about that. But I am sure that Helen and Nina will have more interesting thoughts about it than I do. So let's go to Helen.
1: Okay. Yeah. So I this is a very interesting <clears throat> like propose, you know, like uh, just as an object, right? I think it's a really interesting the fact that it exists and you know everything about it I think says something about the situation that we're in right now. And I think really it comes down to a lot of what you know Benjamin was saying that this it expresses a fragility in both liberalism, so this positivistic attempt to um Maintain an exclusionary conservative logic, but just add in more and more and more um, segments of society, but still sustaining the logic that requires an outsider. So instead of having like a universality based on a shared nothing, it's a false universality based on uh, not sharing anything. And also a fragility of the conservative position, which I think is expressed in the very way that the film is made. It's interesting because you often get um, sort of attempts to unify in this very siloed, oppositional, political, and cultural time. You get, um, you know, both on sort of the liberal side and the conservative side, like an attempt to say, like, well, no, I'm doing the conversation, I'm bridging the gaps we I'm, but it, it's done in a sort of a very aggressive way. Like there was a performance art that came out after twenty the twenty sixteen election that was about overcoming divisions, but it's done in a very oppositional. You know, we're the ones that aren't divisional, but you are, and you see this a little bit in um, on the conservative uh, side of things because often the master signifier for the conservative is truth and universality but again like the liberal attempt at universality the conservative attempt at universality is not a true universality because it doesn't stem from lack so it has to always exclude that lack therefore and we've talked about it loads um in the past in terms of how the conservative claims to have truth and universality on its side but it's it's a an ideological f- version of truth and universality and then um the, let's say, liberal will uh, point holes in this uh, attempt at universality. So, for example, meritocracy, which you can't really have under capitalism, even though meritocracy is like the cover story. And then the, let's say, woke person might throw out universality entirely and revert to particularism, but particularism is trapped within the same logic of the market system in the first place. And this is where we have to critique the critique, because the critique also comes from an ideological perspective. Um, And it's interesting because I think like even the way that to access this film, you have to um, give a year subscription to the Daily Wire. So it's interesting as well that the Daily Wire and other um, sort of right wing organizations have set up studios, which, you know, in and of itself is like totally. Yeah. I mean, why not? Because um, liberal Hollywood, quote unquote, does exclude a certain position. But instead of there being an attempt to do something dialectical, uh, truly universalist, that we have to, under the logic of capitalism, have you know one side versus the other, and so to access, instead of it being like, whilst let's say the you know the because I know Jordan Peterson works with the Daily Wire, it might be like, you know, I'm on the side of truth and I'm on the side of debate, but we all know he, how many times he said he was going to debate a Marxist and then turned it down when those people offered. And then eventually he debated Zizek and it was quite humiliating or whatever. But there's always, you know, I'm the one open, I'm the one open, but <clears throat> it's really sequestered, the content's sequestered behind a paywall um, where you have to pay loads, you know, to, to, to watch it. And I thought it was interesting because it was a very well-reviewed film on IMDb. And that is often either a sign of a film being very good or a film being only watched by a community that it's addressing. Because I'm sure if, you know, a liberal person who's highly ideologically invested in the um, ideology that Matt Walsh is critiquing wouldn't give it such a high, high, um, high grade or whatever. Um, but <clears throat> I have to say, like, in, it, it's, it's an interesting proposition because, you know, and, and this is something that does need to be said Because whilst I agree with the um, philosophical position that I think a lot of the gender studies emerges from, which, you know, involve like psychoanalysis, they they borrow from aspects of psychoanalysis. So for instance, Lacan saying woman does not exist. That woman is sort of a linguistic category doesn't exist. And woman is like a symptom of um, the unconscious, essentially, lack, lack, basically. And so when all these vox vox pop things are you know there and people are being interviewed and asked what's a woman nobody can define it like that's that's an actually very interesting philosophical point that's like i would say it's correct it's the the limit of language and it shows that human subjects are more than just their material reality because of the rupture within material reality itself there's something more um but also, another aspect that I would agree with, with the sort of the gender study side of things, even though, and I'll come on to my critique in a second, is the way that, you know, Matt Walsh will say, well, um, he gives the example of people who are like trans-abled or transracial. Those are very different categories to the category of gender. Gender is, and sex are to do with, you know, everything is to do with a limit of language in a certain way, but sex is, is literally the limit of language. That's what sex is. And I mean, obviously I'm talking about like the act of sex, but like this is not removed from sex as your assigned genetic um Material emergent into the world, and then gender, which is different from sex, and the misalignment is precisely because of the nature of our second birth into language, being born twice. So, gender and sex are categorically different from, you know, ability and race. But it's interesting though because if we are to follow kind of liberal woke logic and the 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 ideology of, of intersectionality, there is Uh, similarity there because these are just identities that you can stack up and it's I am this, I am this, I am this, I am this. But actually psychoanalytically, gender and anything related to sex and gender are categorically different because of the way they relate to language compared to other identity categories. So, you know, what in a way... (laughs) through his attempt to question what is a woman, is inadvertently doing the work of queer studies. So there is an element of the film where the result of the film actually, um, despite Matt Walsh, is quite convincingly on the side of something quite psychoanalytic. And the trouble is in terms of, well, there's there's kind of two things. So first of all, the way in which Matt Walsh um, attempts to get an interview out of these people. So as a document, we can talk about this in the wider discussion, but as a documentary filmmaker, he kind of like goes in, in bad faith to show people up. So he pretends that he's from a pro-gender a charity and, you know, the, the um, interviews are edited to make the people look ridiculous. But obviously, you know, maybe there's an element of the ridiculous in there, but as humans, there's an element of the ridiculous in all of us. So for instance, the gender studies professor at the University of Tennessee, there's an a, Sequence where it's edited, where he's just kind of going blah, 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 blah. You know, so it is not generously depicting that, um, which, you know, maybe garners them more empathy, you know, for, from a viewer who isn't looking to um, find something ideologically confirming in Matt Walsh's sort of project. But the point being that, like, queer theory in and of itself is not necessarily the problem. I mean, it's tied to obviously the fact of the neoliberal American university that requires oppositional logic to sustain itself and oppositional logic um, contains within itself death drive and an absence of truth. And this is necessary to the functioning of capitalism. But at the same time, it's not enough just to critique A way of doing things. And we've talked about this before. This is the sort of premise of Zizek's latest book. You have to critique the critique because the critique itself also comes from, um, you know, a human subject being within the capitalist world and within the same ideological system. So we have to critique our critiques. But so the point being is that here, when when this gender theory gets oppositionalized and marketized and processed through the logic of the neoliberal university, it turns its back on the origins of queer theory and sort of left- wing marxist, hegelian, Freudian theory, which is to do with lack. And we see this in one of the interviews where one of the gender studies professors is unwilling to say that gender and sex are different things. So it's like an attempt in this sort of capitalistic version of queer theory, which basically posits that all of us are queer because of the nature of our subjectivity. So in the old way of doing things, the main group has a pure sexuality and another group is excluded because they are impure. But the queer theory says, no, because of the nature of subjectivity, language, lack, we are all impure and sexuality is a symptom of that impurity. We all share what we don't share. We are all queer. But this capitalistic neoliberal version um, says and there is no promise in that. When there's a true universality, this cannot be commoditized. There is no border or thing to um, transgress and achieve. This is all the... The like original order of things. But the capitalistic version offers a promise and so must sequester the promise of a a specificity of identity and gender. So it actually ends up doing, becoming a right wing version of itself. It's interesting as so well, we have loads of examples in terms of documentaries and, and art and projects and stuff where people from different communities enter into another community. So I think of like Louis Theroux, right? And Louis Theroux, who I imagine is sort of like a liberal person, enters into often very right-wing spaces. And he's often very much liked by his interviewees. And I wonder if that's to do with the fact that Louis Theroux is just a likable person or whether there is a sense of um, non-fragility in the beliefs of some of the people that he interviews, like they're very sure of themselves, and obviously there's a fragility in the um, both in Matt Walsh's own pomposity and also in the interview he's sort of storming off and saying the interview's over. But then we have to do take into account the fact that they're sort of right to storm off because he is being very dishonest in the way that he is leading the interview. But it's interesting. It's like is uh, maybe there's nothing to it, but is there a community that one enters as an outsider? where one feels more i often think that the, the religious world is interestingly like this they they might accept non believers because they have a, a like an ideological belief which includes the possibility of a non believer you know or that um but it's interesting there is something about the fragility and i think this is where Part of the interesting result of what Matt Walsh is doing because it points to not only the fragility of the conservative position, his own position, but also the fragility of the neoliberal um, sort of capitalistic twist on an emancipatory um, philosophical position. Um, the last thing I wanted to say is so, you know, the, these are two sides of the dictum of desire, right? So the Lacan's dictum of desire, you know, do not give way in terms of your desire. And this is a like a radical statement because it it includes the rupture of contradiction within it. And it is our burden as human subjects to deal with that contradiction. So on the one side, we interpret it as uh, do not give way. Do not uh, give yourself over to your desire because there's nothing transcendentally fulfilling in it and this would be the um conservative sort of buck up just get on with it uh position and then do not give way to your desire so in terms of a crossroads do not yield do not let it sorry do not ye- yield as in give way let it pass you by there's two ways of understanding the word give way basically do not let your desire pass you by because there also you're missing out on the possibility of getting something powerful potentially um normally transcendent in giving yourself over to your desire. The trouble is both sides of that dictum are the ways in which on the one side, conservative ideology, and on the other side, liberal ideology, try to neuter the difficulty of desire in that there is no promise in desire, but there's no promise in being the stoic and not enjoying your desire. I thought it was interesting as well that, you know, the the end of the film, and this is obviously this very kind of like scripted last bit where he sees this sort of good old wife who's so sensible and she knows, she knows what the answer is like the good old Maasai people. I thought it was sort of slightly Orientalist. They're closer to essence and they know what, you know, women and men are. Um, And she says, oh, a, a, a woman is an adult human female. But there's something very tautological in that statement because- Female refers to sex and woman refers to gender. So in order to try to describe the gender of woman, it's a reversion back to the thing that's different, which is basically being assigned female at birth or whatever. And it's like, that's just not that's just not good enough. Right. I just and I think we all know it's not good enough. Adult, human, female. What makes a woman a woman is something that is beyond language and it's something beyond categorization. And it is part of the symptom of what makes life worth living, which is contradiction itself.
0: All right. Let's hear from Nina.
2: <clears throat> yeah. Um, well, I, I wrote about this film when it came out for Compact uh, magazine. Um and in some ways it's a kind of easy victory for the right to ask this question and it's actually a symptom of the powerlessness of idiocy of the left in fact that they left this question open in this way um and i i i probably well i you know i i do come at this question in a different way i suppose from both of you no, neither through social role nor, nor through psychoanalysis um and it's sort of horrifyingly uh uh what's the word synchronous, <laughs> Benjamin, that you start talking about shoes and and, and, and cobblers because uh, this week there's been this sort of scandal with Mermaids, who's one of the major tr- trans-promoting charities who run around telling children that they can change sex uh, and to my mind are an extremely evil organisation. Um, and it turned out that one of their trustees had given a talk a few years ago uh, at a paedophilia conference uh, c- comparing... Having sex with a child to masturbating into a shoe, uh, so here the shoe <laughs> recurs in a in a sort of monstrous uh, way, um, and I, I think you know one of the issues with this whole question of being a man and a woman is is to do with well really what reality is, and I and I do think it's kind of fundamentally important and. I think the reason why people have in recent years veered away from talking about biological sex is partly because of economic pressures and Illich talks about this in the gender book. He says, you know, industrial society basically reduces the difference between men and women. Right, that it basically creates a kind of homogeneous sex um, it there are no separate spheres we all work together we all compete with each other you know I've written about this too in terms of the brother sister relationship we're more like siblings than we are any other kind of metaphysical arrangement um, so there is a kind of loss of difference in general which I actually think is a problem for psychoanalysis as well which I which is why I like Joan Kocheck um who I spoke to recently about this, this question. And she said, without a, a concept of difference and a particularly sexual difference, psychoanalysis falls too. So, Whether we want to put it in kind of, you know, essentialist biological terms and say, you know, there are two sexes, male and female, and we're a mammal, and this is how it is, there's no third sex, and any uh, so-called intersex conditions are just actually disorders of sexual development of one or the two sexes, right? The reason why I think people get very upset when you start talking about biological sex It's partly for the reasons that Matt Walsh finishes the film with this idea that sex and gender are the same thing, right? He wants to say, as a right-wing Christian man, that basically to be a woman is to perform a particular set of roles, right? The second wave feminists were well, precisely exploding the concept of gender. Their idea was to abolish the idea of social expectation and social role, but they didn't for a second want to deny the reality of biological difference. Right? It's, it's manifestly obvious that men and women are different. They have different bodies. They have different experiences on the basis of those bodies. It's very important in particular situations, I would argue, and many others, That women have their own spaces that are differentiated on the basis of sex, whether we're talking about changing rooms or sports or prisons or any of these things. And somehow I think these questions come across as extremely boring, right? If you're a highfaluting academic and you're reading Foucault and you're, (laughs) you know, obsessed with these fancy ideas and you think you're so clever and you're beyond all of these normal things, things that basically you would never have to encounter, like you're not worried about going to prison. You're not what, you know, you hate sport. gives a crap right like you know so all of these ideas are seen as low status i think the idea of biological sex as being in any way legally or socially or politically important is seen as a very low status idea to hold right and as we've seen in recent years when women have women in particular have tried to defend the achievements of history and the fact that you know women do have a history um which by the way would make no sense if we if we deny the reality of this category right if you say there's no such thing as women and there's therefore there's no such thing as women's history what you see and in fact we do see this is people trying to trans all of the interesting women and say oh no Joan of arc was a man queen elizabeth was a man like any woman who basically did anything interesting uh, must have been non-binary or man she couldn't have been a woman because what it means to be a woman is to be fucking boring and to do nothing and to contribute nothing to the human story right and this is how the misogyny i think of this movement um really reveals its hand i mean it, it reveals it in multiple ways um it's also completely homophobic the idea that basically if you're a child and you express like for example, in terms of social roles, like you enjoy doing things that are typically associated with the opposite sex, then somehow that must mean you are the opposite sex. I mean, this is absolutely dangerous. It's manifestly false. It's terrible to lie to children. You can't change sex. Um, I think we're seeing the culmination of a whole series of absolutely unforgivable evils, actually, unraveling. And I think the collapse of mermaids that we're seeing now and the fact that it's clearly been at least partly a front for paedophilic Um, interest, just as the paedophile information exchange was in the 1970s. Um, And we have this perpetual problem in the social sphere, which, you know, we can see theologically or metaphysically as the problem of evil. In fact, the evil that comes from us, (laughs) qua humanity. Um, But you'll often see, and this is periodic, attempts to um, basically um, eliminate the difference not only between men and women, but also between adults and children, You know, and once you remove these. Divisions which exist for a reason, then you have no reason why those things are, you know, can't be taken up by anyone. Well, why children can't have sex with adults, and so on, right? So, I, I, I am sure to both of you, I sound slightly deranged on this point, but this is, you know, something that a lot of us have been thinking about for a long time. A lot of us have been very, very punished even for saying like the most minimal things about. Well, can we have a conversation about if we change the law and we say that sex is just what anyone says it is you know it's a matter of self-id um it's not it It. sex is real there are two sexes what that means though in practice is in fact up to you right the entire point about exploding of get, getting rid of gender is to say yes you are born male or female but what you do with it is completely up to you right we need to eliminate those forms of expectation um, that was the second wave point. It was about the abolition of gender. And this was supposed to benefit both boys and girls and men and women because it would take away the pressure to conform to particular social standards. And what we've seen is a regression presented and pretending to be progressive. Um, but what we've seen is a retrenchment of stereotypes, right, to say, oh, if you like this thing, you must be that that sex. How is this not completely, completely regressive? The difficulty that the current movement has, I think, and I tried to talk about this in my piece on the Matt Walsh film, is there is an overlap between the, let's say, uh, (coughs) conservative right and uh, those who want to defend uh, the reality of sexual difference. (coughs) (coughs) Sorry, still quite ill. Um, And they want to say that men and women are real, that sex is real. And that men and women should behave in particular ways. Right. So for them, sex and gender is the same thing. Okay, this is obviously different from the second wave feminist position, which says sex and gender are two separate things. Sex is real, however. Right. And this is where the left, the feminists agree. And they're they're largely left wing agree with the conservative right because they both think that sex is real. Right. But they think it's real for different reasons. Um, and I one of the complicated questions in terms of strategy and politics comes between this question of in this question of alliances, like who do you ally with, um, and to what extent? And this came up recently in the UK. There's a very uh, big uh, feminist activist um, who's uh, made the, the the adult human female T-shirts, and and her name is Posy Parker, or that's one of her names. And she's very glamorous and she's very charismatic. And she's um, not left-wing. I don't know exactly what her politics are, but she, she has a position that she'll talk to anybody. She is maybe voted for Brexit. I don't know, whatever. She's not, she's not part of the typical left-wing liberal, often gay women who form the majority of the feminists who are fighting to protect women's rights in the UK. So there's been a huge debate within this movement um, about the extent to which the left and liberal and, and often gay Um, women can ally with people who are not left-wing and it's caused this whole discussion about purity obviously my position is that we should talk to everybody and anybody and I don't exclude anyone from this conversation because I think what we're talking about here is is reality and we're talking about politics and if we have any idea of democracy we can't really exclude people who have different views and people do have different views because they have different interests and and the question then becomes when we agree on something for example the idea that sex is real and matters in some contexts and this is and that this is a political question that we need to decide through negotiation and careful discussion Right. And and by the way, this is not to exclude gender non-conforming people or people who think of themselves in a different way. It's precisely to negotiate because that's what politics is. Politics is not one small group of people getting whatever they want because they desire it. We cannot have a politics that's based on desire because then it becomes a hierarchy governed by sadists and sociopaths, which is what we're seeing. And It celebrates, you end up celebrating the absolutely malign and destructive desires of a small group of people in the name of sympathy and pity. And women are extremely prone to this um, capture of their goodwill and their good nature because we are uh, trained and we are fundamentally um, kind to the extent that we actually um, often work against our own interests, which is horrible to admit but it's true and those women who stood up and said no we have our own rights um, were absolutely treated like witches you know in a classical sense that's what a witch is (laughs) and we've seen this witch hunt happen for the last few years Um, so I there are many many things to say about this but I you know the Walsh film annoyed me fundamentally because it didn't acknowledge the role that feminists have been playing in asking and answering this question um and I don't I think probably he didn't do that he didn't cover it properly um because he didn't know about it and I think he was ignorant um and I think he wanted to make out like he was the big hero like I'm the man I'm going to solve this problem all of you idiots just need to like listen to me you know I think some of his his tactics are interesting I think he does put some of these you know elite ideas, um luxury believe people under the spotlight and show what um how corrupt they are, which is useful um but I think it's really just the beginning and in, in some ways it's a very frivolous um documentary
1: yeah no, i entirely the um sorry myself in terms of uh, politics like this is this is entirely and you know what we're saying about about the documentary itself that it's it's making people look silly which in the one sense you know should it be the responsibility of an artist to poke at institutional power and all that kind of stuff but at the same time politics and i don't know you know maybe it's not That's just a it's not it's not for a documentary to always be political but is precisely everybody having a say and it's the management of different um I mean, maybe I mean desire in a different way, but desires in terms of how to negotiate living in relationship with other people. And as soon as you exclude a voice from that, that's not left wing. And precisely, I mean, I can kind of understand that there's maybe a a, a thing of like, oh, well, people who are especially excluded or who feel especially fragile in current order of things need to be treated in a different way for a short period of time. But I don't think that's how politics really, you know, philosophically speaking, functions and can function. Maybe that's, that's for a different sphere other than politics. And the fact is that if we don't treat, and this is where I do think queer theory is left wing, is that it's the unival- universality of lack. And if we don't include everybody, we're doing, we're not including because we don't Believe that they are equal, and we are only equal as speaking subjects insofar as we lack. And so, I do think sexuality has, like, it's interesting to to explicate that through a theory of sexuality because that's always going to that's that's a symptom of this very fact of being born into language. So, unless we can include the voices of everybody, and we are more likely to create the fascistic type people through exclusion, because the logic of inclusion of everybody requires a philosophical outlook that's completely at odds with an exclusionary ideology. So we're already lowering the stakes by including voices. And if we think that a certain group cannot tolerate universality, we're basically saying we're being, you know, racist sexist or whatever against them considering them as children but it's interesting you said about this like elision of child and adult and the sort of potential you know there is a thing of you know younger generations thinking about the housing market recently and like what what a 35 year old's life looks like now compared to what it did in the 80s and how much more infantilized we all are but the the other thing i was thinking well there were two other things one was about this idea of um eradicating gender because i think i took from what you were saying that that was part of the second wave movement. But I would say that it seems to me that this ideological, you know, marketized capture of queer theory precisely is eliding, is getting rid of gender. So gender being the thing that isn't essentializable back into something that's commoditizable back towards like a concrete, you know, I think this very much is, there's a concrete um, elision of gender and sex right now of saying like, women are this. And that's related to like a more biological thing. And then there's an attempt at an achievement of the biological thing to represent the gender. So I actually think now that we're having a destruction of gender. But also there, there is one thing in terms of like paedophilia, which maybe maybe other people have said, I'm sure other people have said this, but I do think that there is a little bit of, not like... I scaremongering is the wrong word about paedophilia, but I think that there is a universality in terms of transgression. And maybe it's just different in terms of how it's manifesting today. But like the Catholic church, British boarding schools, all of these conservative institutions are rife with abuse. So is there something more honest instead <laughs> sort of like repressing it and pretending it's not there? You know, I, I don't know. I just think it's interesting. And I think that everything's dialectical. And when people claim to be more honest, you know, I was just thinking today about um, a documentary I'm making and um, these two worlds that I've had to encounter in terms of like getting contributors. And I found one world, the religious world to be far less misogynistic. And I'm not somebody who goes around looking for misogyny towards me as somebody looking to, as a young woman trying to get things done than let's say a more liberal mainstream journalistic world for sure and but that is obviously to do with just like basic dialectics like something that claims to be honest and liberal and open and all this kind of stuff is you know that the, the the judge that the, we, we are all contradictory judgy beings you know and that goes somewhere but i've definitely felt that and it's interesting because this documentary about this religious woman who herself was a pioneer and allowed to be a pioneer in this like very quote-unquote conservative world like that's not a coincidence i don't think Anyway, bit of a waffle there, sorry. (laughs) I
2: I don't think Nina's
0: deranged.
2: (laughs) It's okay if I am. I mean, I'm I'm really ill and I've taken lots of cold medicine. (laughs) I
0: I don't think Nina's deranged. As, As I am listening to Nina, I am reminded of other conversations I've had about this. And on these culture war issues. It gets framed as a binary and the binary here is either you think that gender determines sex or you think that sex determines gender. So either you have the position that is the kind of mainstream academic position or you have the position that the Basai people have and there is no other position. And if you try to articulate another position, you'll be lumped in with whoever you don't want to be lumped in with. Mm-hmm. And then the fact that you've been lumped in with those people will cause that to be the first thing anybody says about you whenever you talk about any other political issue and used to prevent anything you say about any other issue from being taken seriously by anybody. And I am aware of this. And yet I think it does affect my willingness to treat certain issues as priority issues. Uh, in part because I'm always thinking about the proletariat and the worker and the miseries that the worker endures and the importance of being able to talk about that. Mm -hmm. And everything else to me, I tend to instrumentalize a little bit. And I, you know, I sometimes do this with foreign policy where I will be more willing to entertain particular perspectives on foreign policy so that I don't appear to be uh, in with some group of people that you're not supposed to be in with. Uh, And I think that we all feel a certain pressure to do this. And Mm -hmm. I try to do it less than other people. And I try to be more open to hearing lots of different perspectives. Clearly, there are other points of view apart from those two points of view. The second way of feminist point of view is the se- a secret third point of view in which sex and gender both exist, but they are kind of separate from each other. There is, of course, some effect that sex has on the way gender tends to be understood, but it is possible to diminish or erode that effect to a significant degree. And we should try to do that. That's what I take the second way of feminist position to be. Uh, and I don't see anything fundamentally wrong with that. But if you advocate for that position, then you are accused of supporting the Maasai people position that sex determines gender straightforwardly and totally in a narrow and reactionary way. And so it it seems like a a kind of a... What I am seeing with left-wing... Commentators, is that this issue, certain foreign policy issues, um, race in the United States, these issues are used to get people. If you're willing to take the disciplined position on those things, then you're probably willing to take the disciplined position on the economy too. Mm-hmm,
1: mm-hmm.
0: And so by making it a criteria of being part of respectable elite opinion that you hold these views about culture and foreign policy and so on, uh, it becomes much more likely that those people will also, when push comes to shove toe the line on economic issues. And so it, it does seem to be important to create more space for people to have different views about social issues and foreign policy as part of creating space for people to have different views about the economy that are taken seriously. Otherwise, what we see is that people will appear to have a critique of capitalism, toe the line on everything else. And then when push comes to shove and it's actually time to to do something, they'll tend to toe the line because they've been towing the line their whole career whenever it's mattered. Mm -hmm. And they've been allowed to say whatever it is critical about the economy. Uh, And the moment that the space for that contracts, they respond to it instinctively. And I don't want to be that kind of person.
2: No. no. I, I think there's this bigger question, you know, outside of politics, you know, the question of, of truth, of of reality, you know, whether we describe that as a philosophical or a scientific, you know, and you know, the first round, the first time p- human beings ask this question, it's before these disciplinary divisions even exist. You know, it's 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 a kind of deep um desire really to understand the world in, in, in a very fundamental and basic sense. And I think, you know, even, even if we say, okay, look, there's this whole set of ideas or we've had these ideas for thousands of years, there's still a question there about whether we changed them. And if, and if, if we do change them, we should have a discussion about it. Like, you know, everyone's been operating with kind of tacit knowledge. Okay. Yes. There are different cultures. There are different expectations, you know, but basically there has been a whole, you know, deep tacit knowledge about the reality that there are two sexes. I mean, again, Illich talks about this in the, in the gender book. I mean, that book also saw him canceled by the way, in the early eighties, um, for him to even talk about it was contentious. You know, I can't even imagine what if he, he published it now, it, w- it would happen. I mean, he'd probably have his house firebombed. Um, you know, but, it, and it's, and there is something psychoanalytically extremely revealing. And I agree with Helen in this way about how this discussion um, deranges people, right? Like, including myself. <laughs> I'm okay to admit that, you know, and I think it's, there is something about the position of the woman. Um, which has which causes kind of uh, problems. You know, there is an asymmetry in the sexual difference, which maybe plays out linguistically, plays out sexually, plays out symbolically, conceptually, in terms of hierarchies. You know, we are a, in the West, we are a culture that is predicated on the idea of the one. You know, Simone de Beaufort makes this point. You know, we're the second sex because our whole imaginary is monolithic. You know, if we had a cosmic idea that was based on the principle of the two, you know, such as some Eastern cosmologies, where you have male and female as the two kind of fundamental and constitutive poles of reality, and they're kind of constantly locked in a cyclical war, peace, battle, you know, and, and, and just to you know be really superficial about it. That's a different way of seeing things. You know, in the West we have a kind of very uh, you know, unified, hierarchical, sort of monolithic, monotheistic uh, masculinist mm-hmm. image of what sex is, and of course this means that femininity and the female, all of those things, are played off in opposite, a strange kind of opposition, like a lacking opposition, like we are not one. You know, would be the point, right? But, but the problem is that's all that's all well and good and it's very interesting to think about in in, in the dreamscape and in our unconscious and and our sex lives but there there is a reality <laughs> when when that kind of theorizing bleeds back into politics and the reality of prisons and sports and all these boring things that people don't want to think about like there is an issue you know there the, the sex you know dividing things by sex doesn't then tell you how you should behave right it just says look there is a, a reality mm-hmm. it's it's sort of better that we do this for reasons of safety and, and and not even just safety just like you know it's sometimes you want to be only with members of your own sex and that's okay like but the, but this <laughs> it's just, okay for men too <laughs> this just reflected you know what you were saying about and i i do feel
1: kind of Bad about this often that that things change under capitalism. You know, th- things change rapidly, and what you know, we the the transformation of society over the last you know bunch of decades. It's it's you know it's precipitous, and you'd think we'd have the compassion to allow people to grieve that change, or that art, for instance, might be a place for people to come to terms with the changes of the seasons, and you know. And it's true that in different periods of times, different groups of people, um, you know, existed in different ways and that maybe we should have empathy for people who feel like they're losing their footing instead of doing sort of this double justice of, you know, even though, you know, the identity thing is, is really an ideological thing and it's actually a class issue, but, you know, losing your footing and then being blamed for it and then not even being allowed to sort of, um dialogue on it which would make a transformation towards something more egalitarian more palatable you know and and doable Um, but also this this idea you know of absolutism that we have this logic that's not dialectical so i do see things of going back into the past and seeing saying like joan of arc was really a man or was really trans or something is a real example of this it's sort of this um you know you get this all the time with contemporary um, movies for instance that that are redress uh, a novel and turn it into sort of like a lean-in feminist version of the novel you know so we we don't even transform our present in this absolutist non-dialectical way but we also transform our past and then we accept we expect people who are within um, you know the organism of society to not be quite shocked and upset by this on an unconscious level and we don't provide a space, we sort of discipline people to catch up instead of understanding, you know, the lacking nature of subjectivity itself. Um, So it's very, you know, this, this, and as I say, like, I think the best of, um, you know, critical theory and queer theory or whatever is this dialectical logic. And it's, it kind of goes to show how anything can be transformed back into something absolutist and reactionary. Um, yeah, but I, yeah, I, I also was just w- wondering, cause I, I am not like that clued up about like the history of feminism at all, but this idea of, cause you were saying that, um, second wave feminism, was I right in, in hearing that you said that there was an attempt to sort of abolish gender or is it like to, yeah. to, to, to. How, how's well, that there's work?
2: The, yeah. yeah, there's lots of, there's lots of strains. I mean, let's be mm-hmm. clear. So, you know, you have the radical feminist strain, you have a socialist feminist, you have materialist feminists. you have Marxist feminists, and you know, they, they're often all fighting with each other, you have the womanist movement, you, you know, tries to kind of um, deal with with race, you know, it's a, it's a very complicated moment, you know, but I think it's the most important moment in feminism, really, because it's the one where all of the questions and the problems are posed in the most metaphysical and philosophical way, I think. And I I think we haven't yet dealt with these questions. What we've had is a kind of weird consumerist backlash. And, you know, I wrote about this like in 2009, you know, and even before that, um, you know, we've had a kind of consumerist capture of of, of so-called feminists. Mm -hmm. We've had feminism, we've had the third wave, which is like sex positive and, you know, just basically completely compatible with, you know, the commodification of, of bodies and everything else, you know, and I don't regard any of what is described as feminism today as As feminist at all, I think it's anti-feminist profoundly. Like I don't think it serves women, and it doesn't. It doesn't serve their interests at all. It it serves capital, and it serves men. To be honest, Um, or a certain kind of man. Actually, it doesn't serve all men either. Um, And I think you know we we've talked about the girl boss, and we talked about these kind of tropes of of contemporary femininity, uh, toxic femininity, if you like. you know, and I, I think the second wave was really the point at which there was this question of what, what does it mean if women are human too? <laughs> Actually, what does it mean when we've had political, when we've, we've been given political agency? You know, and of course, the first wave, you have people like Craft and, and, and de Beauvoir somewhere in the middle in the 40s, um, you know, sort of out on her own. And, you know, de Beauvoir makes this point that basically, freedom for women is the freedom to fail, you know, and I always say this, but I think it's incredibly important because in a way to have personhood is precisely, right, you would say to lack, you know, to be able to, 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 um, be empty, you know, to be conscious of the fact that one doesn't have what one wants or mm-hmm. that one desires and doesn't know why, um, you know. But also to be able to sort of be in a position to explore that and to think about it, to write about it, and so on. You know, this is relatively historically recent, and I think the mass entry of of, of women into politics and or to political discourse, not just suffrage, but um, you know, discourse and, and and the idea of of women being a moral being is something we haven't come to terms with. It's actually extremely recent history in the grand scheme of things right the, the the participation of women in all of these ways is incredibly it's like a blink of an eye it's it's barely five minutes ago really in the grand scheme of things uh you know particularly in the west in in this way um and i think one of the difficulties you know about this ho- holding space and and mourning the loss is like you know, we, we, we really only had like five seconds <laughs> before woman became a floating signifier again. And then it was like, oh, I, you know, woman is whatever I say it is. It's like, oh, hang on. Right. So all of that history on which women were treated as women on the basis of their biology because they were women. Right. We just forget about that. Right. Like, oh, no, no, that's fine. That they could have just identified out of it. I don't think so. Like, this is this does an injustice to history apart from anything else. And mm-hmm. I think if you have a historical feeling, you know, if you're a socialist feminist or a Marxist feminist or materialist feminist, I don't see how you can abandon this, the reality of the history of feminism. It's not to say that women aren't treated differently under different regimes and different, you know, modes of production. Of course they are. But they are treated on the basis of their biology. They're treated socially on the basis of their biology. Marx and Engels are turfs according to today's logic. You know, they really do think that women exist, <laughs> you know, and, and they're treated in a particular way at particular times on the basis of the fact that they're women, you know. And, and how could women have identified out of this? I mean, it doesn't make any sense. You know, yeah, this idea,
0: nothing- uh, you, you positive, of identifying out of things. I think yeah. this is the kind of principal cultural solution that liberalism offers to people who are unhappy, is to just identify <laughs> out. To just uh, decide that you are actually not at all related to what it is that you do. Uh, and I guess that sex is, is one part of that. I think there's a whole galaxy of, of things that we're invited to use to identify out. Whether it's fandoms or uh, sexuality or race or ethnicity or where you're Parents, parents, parents were born, uh, genetics, those 23 uh, and me, all that all that stuff uh, that people do. Uh, there's a whole galaxy of this, and if we don't acknowledge it in these domains, it is harder to critique it in other domains. It's got mm-hmm. to be I it's got to be critiqued where it is
1: what I think and I've seen this even in the last sort of five years in psychoanalysis is that, so I would say, and maybe like, cause the other thing is like, we, we all have like different opinions on certain things and that's also cool. And that's also part of the reason why I think the lack is good. <laughs> you know, It's like we can, we obviously take, we're very, very similar in many ways, but we take all of our differences seriously. And also that's part of, the real of being political right but mm-hmm. so i you know i do think like desire and quote unquote identity is to do with a, a something that cuts across everything which is the unconscious and that we aren't one-to-one beings that a does not equal a in this universe because it like basically would not exist unless there was a fundamental difference between on and off in the first place but um the thing that i find that's extraordinary in a psychoanalysis is how that Insight is being turned away from something that points to an undercutting of ideology towards a doubling down into ideology, which I think is really, it's strange. And also, I mean, it just goes to show that nothing is, um, you know, that like nothing is transformative in and of itself, you know, that um, you can have all of these ideas, but they can still be weaponized towards market logic. Um, Even though fundamentally, if you can hold the space for the thing that it's bringing up in the first place, there could be something logically that points to a way to address economic issues. But in in and of themselves, they can still be, anything can be used as a cover story for the fundamental economic issues that are going on.
0: Yeah, if if powerful... Institutions and distributions of stuff are on the side of understanding particular terms in particular ways. Mm -hmm. Even if those conceptualizations don't withstand scrutiny, they win. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: And we're in a period now where the domination of capital over concepts is, I think, greater than it's ever been, in part because both. The uh, aristocratic pre-capitalist conceptions have been, uh, at this point, heavily eroded almost to oblivion. And the capacity of workers to introduce new or subversive conceptions has been eroded almost to oblivion. And so we are increasingly told that we have to use terms in particular ways that are thought terminating Mm -hmm. and unhelpful. uh, And if we don't do that, then we're kicked out. Anyway, we've got to continue on the B-side, so we're going to go and do that. Thank you guys so much for listening, and have a wonderful rest of the day. Bye-bye.
2: Bye. Bye. Bye Bye-bye.